All right. Good morning, everyone. Hear me all right? So a couple words before we get into our passage today in Matthew. If you weren't here last week, in case you missed it, Pastor Bill announced that he and his family are going to be moving to, to Buffalo to serve at a church uh, in Buffalo. And of course, we are going to greatly miss Pastor Bill and the Cuthbertsons, and we can, we're going to be praying for them in their, in their transition, of course, and we, we want to bless them as a church in their transition. There's going to be more information coming about how, as, as a church, we're going to be blessing the Cuthbertson family uh, with their move. But I wanted to, to say, in case you were here and you're thinking last week or even now, in the past year, we've had two of our pastors transition. And so maybe you're thinking, is the ship sinking? Are we okay? What's going on here? And my answer to that is, no, the ship is not sinking. And the ship is not sinking because God is in control. God has our church. God is leading our church. And as those two transitions have been taking place, at the same time, God has been raising up people to continue to serve and to lead our church. We ordained Nat, Pastor Nat, and Jason, Pastor Jason, as lay elders of our church. And they have been doing a phenomenal job of caring for you and leading our church. Uh, simultaneously, we, we hired Blake to be the director of, of discipleship, mainly our youth, because we have a great need there. And also with outreach, some of the same um, jobs that Pastor Bill has had. And Pastor Bill has been teaching and guiding Blake uh, so far, and Blake has been doing a great job as well. So, the ship is not, is not sinking. The Lord is in control and leading our church. Two other, two other announcements here, two dates I want you to, to know about, and that should give you some confidence with our church moving forward as well. So, on January 2nd, 2022, got to get used to saying that relatively soon, 2022, January 2nd, 2022, we're going to have a church planting vision Sunday. So on January 2nd, don't miss that Sunday because I'm going to, to explain to you the entire vision we have as a church moving forward in our goal to plant churches that plant churches in the Northeast, in the U.S., and abroad. So don't miss that Sunday, January 2nd, Church Planting Sunday. Second date that you may, may want to jot down is February 20th, 2022. And on that Sunday, we're going to have a state of the church, a town hall meeting. Bring your questions. We're going to talk about our, our, our goals moving forward and where we are as a church. Please be praying for, for uh, your elders as we get together and talk through and pray through and retreat together to talk about how we can best uh, serve you and lead the church as we follow our Lord Jesus as well. So with that said, let's transition to our passage today. And for our passage today in Matthew 23, I'm going to call up Laura Santos, who bravely uh, said yes when asked to read this long passage in Matthew chapter 23, and we're going through the whole chapter, and we're even going to get into the first two verses of Matthew 24, and I'd like to, to call you to please, it's a long passage, but because of how long it is, I'm, when I work through it, I usually like to go through verse by verse, uh, but because it's really long, she's going to read it one time. And so please try to pay attention to it because it's long and I can't cover every part as we go through it. So uh, Laura's going to read our passage for us. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, Tori. For the record, when Rob asked me, 
he asked me if I'd be willing to read the scripture before he told me what the passage was. (laughs) Thanks, Rob. Okay. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 23, 1 through 24, 2. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Laura. Aristotle, Pharisees, and Jesus. It's not the beginning of a joke. Instead, I'm going to tell you where I'm going with that. Aristotle, the Pharisees, and Jesus. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher in the 300s BC. He was also something called a polymath. Polymath was someone with a wide range of knowledge and learning. And one of, those, one of those topics in his learning and knowledge was rhetoric, public speaking. And here's what he taught about rhetoric, that there were three main factors for a good public speaker. Three main factors for a good public speaker. First one was logos. There's these three Greek words, logos, pathos, ethos. Logos, pathos, ethos. The logos was the logical appeal of the speaker, the words that they said. Did it make sense? How was the content? What are they saying? That's the first part, the logos. Secondly, the pathos. That's the passion behind what they're saying. Not just what they're saying, but how they're saying it. Are they saying it with emotion, with passion? If I was up here and I talked just like this, words were with no pitch or inflection or tone, after a while I'd probably lose you. So the passion behind what they're saying. And then the ethos 
is the character of the person. Who are they? Can you trust them? Not just what they say and how they say it, but who are they? If they've been someone that's lied multiple times in the past, why should you trust them with what they're saying now? The logos, the pathos, the ethos. What they're saying, how they're saying it, and who they are. And as, you, as we go through this passage today, I want you to think about the Pharisees and what they say and how they say it and who they are. And I want you to think about Jesus, what he says, how he says it, the passion behind it, and who he is, his character. And you can think about that as you work through the Gospel of Matthew as a whole as well. But before we jump into the text today, I want to give you a little bit of background leading up to what's happening in today's passage in Matthew. So Jesus entered into Jerusalem. That's the beginning of Passion Week. Clock starts ticking when he arrives on that donkey into Jerusalem. And we've seen for several weeks as we've been going through Matthew that the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite have been testing Jesus. They've been trying to discredit him, get rid of him, challenge his authority, get him to get away from the crowds and from teaching and to corner him. And they thought they could do it multiple times with political questions, religious questions, and they keep failing. And at the end of chapter 22, it says, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. They gave up. But they're not done with their plan. Soon they will murder the God-man. But that leads us to our text today. They're done questioning him. Now it's his time to speak to them. And that brings us to the main idea for our passage in all of Matthew 23. Here's what we have. The king warns against hypocrisy, pronounces woes to the hypocritical Pharisees, and then weeps over Jerusalem. He warns against hypocrisy. He pronounces these woes, we'll talk about what that means, to the hypocritical Pharisees, and then he weeps over Jerusalem. He doesn't just cry out, he then cries. So, here's how we'll break that down. First of all, the warning against hypocrisy. That's in verses 1 through 12 for our first point for the roadmap. Secondly, he pronounces the woes to the hypocritical Pharisees. Those are in verses 13 to 36 of Matthew 23. And then finally, he weeps over the city. He weeps over those that have rejected him. Verses 37 to 39, and we'll talk a little bit about verses 1 to 2 in Matthew 24 as well. But before we get into that, something else I want to tell you. So this whole passage here is this warning against a legalistic heart, the heart that has to try to earn a relationship with God. It's also a warning against hypocrisy, right, about, about trying to be someone you're not. And I think it's so easy to fall into that tendency to work for God's love rather than from God's love. Little change from for to from, but a huge difference in someone's life. Are you working for God's love or from it? Because I think all of us, if we were honest, we would admit there's some pocket, there's some area in our life that we feel God either can't reach or doesn't want to reach, doesn't want to forgive us of, can't overlook. We think we're the special case that somehow the forgiveness and the love and the grace of God doesn't reach. And that causes us to try to work for it, to try to earn it in some way. And Jesus' response to those who are weighed down by thinking that they have to earn his love and follow all these commands in order to be right with God and to be a good person and all these things, he says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what he says to us. And there's a whole book written on those couple verses by Dane Ortland, a newer book that came out this year. It's called Gentle and Lowly. And I've been working through this book and I am, I'm savoring it, I'm loving it. And there was an opportunity to get a free copy, so I went online, got my free copy, and then learned a few days later how Pastor Rob seems to think about you guys a bit more than I do because he went online, he didn't get one copy, he got 300 or something like that, a lot. He got a lot. And so we have copies for everybody. If you'd like a copy, on your way out, grab a copy of this book, okay? It's something I think that will be good for your soul to read it. Read through it slowly. See God's heart. It emphasizes so much the heart of Jesus. And if you want that, 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 that cure for our naturally legalistic, natural hearts of ours is to know his heart. So please grab a copy of that book on the way out. Uh, it's simply because we want... Um, for you guys to know Christ, right? That's why we're here. And so that book can help as he goes through those verses. Um, so getting into our first point here. I see in, in verses 1 through 12 this warning against hypocrisy. I see Jesus acknowledge the authority of Moses. I see him attack the character, the ethos, right, of the Pharisees. And then he calls us to avoid just focusing on others. In case you're trying to just think about somebody else and how terrible they are, Look introspectively. Avoid just focusing on others. So first he acknowledges the authority of Moses. We see that in verses 2 to 3 when he says, to the crowd and to his disciples. That's who he's talking to. The crowd and his disciples. And he says to them, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, so do what they tell you. That's the first thing he says. They sit on Moses' seat, so do what they tell you. What does he mean by that? The playbook is good. They're taking the word of God. Remember, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they taught that. The Pharisees used more of the entire Old Testament. The playbook is good. Listen to what they're saying from God's word. He acknowledges the authority of Moses. But he also acknowledges, as he has before, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, they had missed the spirit of the law. And they were adding their own traditions to make it on par with God's word. So while, we're, while the teachers at the time that the people had, while he acknowledged their, their, their teaching from God's word, he's saying, don't just take it all, don't just take it spoon-fed and take it all as God's truth without checking yourself. Don't just be spoon-fed God's word. Take the time to be in it yourself, to know God, so when you hear something that doesn't line up with his word, you can know it. And not just believe what everybody tells you, what somebody tells you, even if they're in a teaching position. <laughs> Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, the good Bereans, when they heard the teaching from Paul and Silas, and they didn't just say, oh, well, that's got to be true because these men just said it. They went and they checked the word to see if it lined up with the word of God. Jesus first acknowledges the authority of Moses, but then he goes and he attacks the character, the ethos of the Pharisees in verse 3. He says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They preach, but they do not practice. He gives some examples. In verse 4, he says, they place heavy burdens on people's shoulders and they don't lift a finger to help. They're putting all these burdens on you and they're not doing anything to try to help you. Remember before, back in Matthew 6, we talked, we talked quite a bit about this. Some of the extra laws they put on top of the already 613 commands in the Mosaic Covenant. 
one of which was according to the Sabbath. They were supposed to take one day and Sabbath. That word literally means stop. Stop working. Stop working and rest and acknowledge the Lord and all that he's given you and know that you're dependent on him. And those are all, that's a good command to have, a good principle for us still to rest, to acknowledge him, to know that we can't do it all ourselves, never meant to. But the Pharisees also added on top of that command to stop and they gave a certain number of steps the people could step on each Sabbath day. They didn't have Fitbits at the time. They had to count, okay, how many steps they took. Very heavy burdens. And they didn't take a second to try to help. And then he goes after their character in verse 5 when he says, you like your phylacteries broad and your fringes long. What in the world is a phylactery? Well, I got a picture for you of a phylactery. So forehead right there, you see a small box. That's a phylactery. Small wooden box. And the Pharisees would put inside of those boxes some scripture passages from Deuteronomy 6 and 11, from Exodus 9 and 13, some, some of the teaching that God gave to the people of Israel to, to have his teaching and his law and his commands on their forehead and arm and write it on your door and all this. They took that very literally and they created these boxes and put it on their forehead and their forearms with those passages in it to show people that, look, we've got it. We remember what God said and they like to make their phylacteries, their boxes big. Look at all the passages of scripture I have right on me at all times. Look how holy I am. They like their fringes long. I have a picture of that too. Prayer shawls to show people how much they pray and how holy and how spiritual they are. He's calling out their motivation. He said here in Matthew 23 that they want to be seen. They want the seats of honor, the greetings in the marketplaces, even some of the good things that they're doing like praying, and again, remember back in Matthew 6, that audience of one message. Even sometimes the good things that we do. God knows our heart. And sometimes even the good things we do, we have wrong motives. He said, when you pray, don't go out on the road and do these long, eloquent, fancy prayers that everybody can hear and be so impressed with how spiritual of a man or a woman you are. Shut the door. Pray to your Father who hears you and rewards you in secret. And when you give, don't slam dunk your offering. Don't blow a trumpet. Don't let everybody know what you're doing. Give because of your heart for the Lord and for his kingdom. And when you fast, he said in Matthew 6, don't disfigure your face to make it look like you've been doing it much longer than you have and try to impress people with how disciplined you are and how long you've been denying yourself in order to seek the Lord and you try to look all you know, impressive that way because of self-denial. Don't do those things. Even in the good things that we do, our hearts can be wrong. We can have the wrong spirits rather than that humble spirit of seeking after the Lord. He calls out their character, their ethos. Their teaching was mixed with their own traditions that they put on par with the word of God. Their character clearly was not being changed daily by God's presence in them. But before we focus too much on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and we all get together and say, oh, how terrible of people they were and we pat ourselves on the back, I'm glad I'm not like them. That sounds a lot like what the Pharisees used to say. <laughs> glad we're not like these other people. You know, I'm just, side note, I'm glad we're not the kind of church that you hear repeatedly Sunday after Sunday something like, oh, that church down the road, you know, or oh, that church in the other, have you heard what they're doing and how terrible they are? And have, how often, have you ever heard me say something like that, trying to put down other churches in order to make ourselves feel better? Calling out false teaching and things like that in your own lives if you're listening to false teaching and things, that's part of our responsibility as, 
as, as leaders and elders to make sure that we're following God's word as best as we can, flawed we are. But let's not be the kind of church that just pushes other people down and other churches down in order to make ourselves feel better. He doesn't want us to just focus on other people. Verse 8, he says, but you, <laughs> but you. There was a pastor I heard. He said something like this. I'm going to paraphrase. He said, when I was younger, I thought, I'm going to get out there and change the world. I'm going to go shake the world. I'm going to be a world changer. And he said, some years went by, and he realized, okay, I can't really change the world, but okay, Lord, here's my next prayer. Let me change my family and my close friends. And then some years went by and realized, okay, I can't really change the world. Can't really change my family and my close friends. Lord, change me. That's beautiful, isn't it? And you know what the, the irony is? Is that when we go before the Lord with our sins and with how we, he, we want him to change us more into the image of Jesus, that's how we impact other people. <laughs> not by calling out all their mistakes, not by pushing other people down, but by saying, Lord, I'm the worst, I'm the worst guy I know. That's paraphrasing Paul in Corinthians. <laughs> I'm the worst guy I know. Change me. Change my heart. And that's how we make an impact on others. He said, but you, verses 8 through 10, don't be called rabbi or father or instructor. You have one of those, and it's him. Now, I don't think titles are a bad thing. I think what he's trying to teach us is that to try to get significance, to try to get perks and privileges because of titles, that's where the errors lie. Because in the New Testament, there's roles, there's, gift, there's gifts of teaching. It's not wrong to be a teacher. I hope not. I'm your teaching pastor. That would be bad. Okay. Um, it's not wrong to be called father, both, both, both earthly fathers and mothers in some of the epistles. It talks about fathers, mothers, children, all those things. Paul calls Timothy his child in 1 Corinthians 4 as in he's his spiritual father, father of the faith. The roles aren't bad, the titles aren't bad, but a title does not make you more valuable than somebody else. We have to check our heart with that. I remember when I first moved here, I was thinking about getting a PhD eventually because I had an, I had an in at the school. I could have been able to do that if I wanted to, and I talked to Pastor Ed about it uh, maybe a year after I got here, and I said, you know, I've been thinking. I, don't, I might end up at some point trying to go back and get the PhD. Nothing wrong with getting a PhD, but we talked about it a bit, and we talked about some of the motives there, and I realized I have nothing necessarily that I want to go and write about, and I don't have a vision for that. And so it was because I just wanted the title. Dr. Arneson sounds better than Mr. Arneson. And we pointed that out, and we have to check our hearts with titles and things like that. It doesn't make someone more valuable than anybody else. In fact, he says, verses 10 and 11, the greatest among you is your servant. Servant. Verse 11, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see that throughout the story of Scripture. Look at the people that try to humble themselves, that try to exalt themselves. See what happens. See how God deals with them. See in, in Genesis 11 when all the, the nations come together to try to exalt their own name and what happens to them. And then look at people like Abraham where God says to him, I'm going to make your name great. <laughs> It's not just true in the past, it's true in the future. Those who try to exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves, God will exalt them. He warns against hypocrisy. He wants us to take the masks off. That's what a hypocrite literally means, one who wears a mask. 
one who's trying to be and pretending to be something they're not. And we're not talking about Halloween or some fun murder mystery party or something like that where we're wearing masks. He's talking about real life. He wants us to be authentic, and he warns against hypocrisy. But then he pronounces these woes to the Pharisees, who are being quite hypocritical. In verses 13 to 36, he pronounces these woes. He cries out against the Pharisees. That's in that long passage about woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Hypocrites, blind guides, deceiving others, deceiving yourself, leading when you're going in the wrong direction. He cries out against the Pharisees. And then he talks about the consequences of not listening to him in verses 34 to 36. So he cries out against the Pharisees. He's been patiently waiting as they've been trying to test him, discredit him with all these questions, and he's stopped that, and they don't dare to ask him any more questions. Now he speaks to them. I wonder how many people think that they can question God their whole life and think all, it's, it's one-sided. We question God, and that's the end of the story. Have you heard people say things like, well, how could a good God X, X, Y, Z? How could God this? Why is God this? It's not that asking questions like that are wrong necessarily if you're trying to get to the truth. But it's not just a one-sided questioning that's going to happen. God's not the one on the hot seat. <laughs> Let's get that right. We see the passion of Jesus spill out as he cries out against the Pharisees. Jesus came to serve and to build people up. And he gets angry when he sees people, not as the Pharisees were, not building people up, but using people to build themselves up. And that makes our king angry as they mislead and mistreat people. God is not indifferent about the injustices in the world. He's not indifferent when people take advantage of other people. He's not indifferent. He's passionate. And he's angry. If a father had a daughter and his daughter was mistreated, a father that truly loves his daughter, the more he loves her, the more angry he's going to be when his daughter's mistreated. Not, not indifferent about it. Our God is angry every day in that way. He calls out these woes to the Pharisees. If you are familiar with some of the Old Testament prophets, they would pronounce woes against Israel, sometimes against other nations, about their injustice, about their idolatry, warnings to turn back to God. And now we have Jesus, right? Not just another prophet sent from God, but the very word of God made flesh, crying out, giving these woes to the Pharisees. They probably were approaching him as he turns to them away from the crowd and calls out these woes to them. There's seven of them, but here's what I want to do for us today. I summarize them into five. <laughs> and I want you, instead of just thinking about them, instead of just thinking about other people in your life that this may apply to, as we go through these seven, which are summarized into five, paraphrase for you, I want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about your own relationship with God, and right now, maybe it's different than it was a year ago, a month ago, five years ago, maybe if you read this text before. Right now, where is your heart in need of a pharisectomy. I got that term from the summers. Where are you in need of it? Let's talk about it one at a time. Number one, based on verses 13 to 15, he says to the Pharisees, you're supposed to be helping others into the kingdom of God, but you're not in yourself. 
and you're hindering other people from getting in. And the people that you think you're helping are actually worse off. You're supposed to be helping others into the kingdom, but you're not in yourself. This has got to be the most severe one. He's saying to them, you're not, you're not gods. All the faking, all the hypocrisy, you've deceived yourself. You're not in. So the question for us, if we're in that category, is have we fully surrendered our life to Jesus? It's, a, it's, it's pretty simple. As he said before, it's a free invitation into the kingdom, remember? He wants, you to go, he wants you to come. He wants you to enter. And you do that by confessing your sins to him and believing that he lived and died for you, that he wants you, that he rescued you. Him alone. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind that we may be saved. There's salvation in no other name. Full surrender to Jesus. He says to them, you think you're in, you're not in. They hadn't surrendered. They were living for themselves. They were deceiving themselves, deceiving others, and leading others away from the Lord. Number two, verses 16 through 22. He tells them that they are creating ways to justify themselves. Do you create ways to get around what you know God wants you to do? So the example he gives is the Pharisees were getting around the promises they were making. They were saying things like, oh, okay, it's okay. I, I made a promise. I made an oath. But it was according to the altar and not the gift on the altar. Or it was according to the temple but not the gold in the temple. That's what really matters creating ways to do whatever you want to do. They were creating ways to lie. Remember back in Matthew 6, Jesus said, just don't make promises at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But that's the example he gives here of ways that we can try to justify ourselves, justify our actions. The third one, based on verses 23 to 24, he's telling them that they're magnifying certain parts of God's commands that they feel like they're being successful at to the neglect of the more important commands. Do we emphasize the commands, the ways we know God wants us to live because we're doing a good job in those areas while we neglect, don't think about the other commands that he gives us? Does that make sense? You know, I've been a very consistent, he gives tithing as an example. You tithe all this stuff, but you don't care about the person next to you. You're missing the weightier things, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Oh, I give consistently. But do you care about the people in this room? The weight of your commands? Number four. Based on verses 25 through 28. He's telling them that they're caring more about the appearance of godliness rather than the reality. They care more about what people think about them than who they really are. Do you care more about what people think about you than who you really are? He says the cup can look clean on the outside. Nice and clean, shiny cup. But when you go for the gulp, there's junk and mold and self-indulgence and greed and lawlessness and hypocrisy on the inside. What, what, what good is a clean cup when there's sludge on the inside? Do you care more about what people think about you than who you really are? I want us to be a church that is genuinely pursuing God and wanting him to change us. Not just looking like we're doing that. Not just having a nice setup where we sing songs and we hear a message and we, oh, it's a nice day in church again this week and we go home and we never change. 
Fifth one, verses, based on verses 29 through 33. Do you think you're better than other people? That's what he says to the Pharisees. In pride, they would decorate the tombs of prophets before them that were killed by their ancestors, and they said, if we were alive at the time, we never would have done such a thing. Do you, in pride, think you make better decisions than other people? That's a pharisaical trait. And Jesus says to them, nope, you're definitely the kids of your parents. Go and finish what they started. That's what he tells them. They're not just going to murder some, another prophet. They're going to murder the Son of God. Hopefully, as we listen to those and as we hear those woes summarized into those five, we hear in ourselves some of the ways that God wants to change us, to not live for ourselves, to not be hypocritical, to instead of work for God's love, work from his love. But we all tend to have that little legalist in us, don't we? I have a quote here from the book, Gentle and Lowly, that you should grab a copy of on the way out. You know, we don't get, there's no benefit for us here, by the way, if you take a book, other than the fact that we want you to take a book. Take the book and, and, and learn more about the heart of God for it. Okay. All right. Here's what it says in the book. There is an entire psychological substructure that, due to the fall, is a near-constant manufacturing of relational leveraging fear-stuffing, nervousness, score-keeping, neurotic-controlling, anxiety-festering silliness that's not something we say or even think as much as something we exhale. You need to hear that again? So do I. There is an entire psychological substructure that, due to the fall, is a near-constant manufacturing of relational leveraging, fear-stuffing, nervousness, score-keeping, neurotic-controlling, anxiety-festering silliness that's not something we say or even think as much as something we exhale. You resonate at all with that? It's just part of what we do. We all need those ferrisectomies frequently. <laughs> okay. Then he talks about the consequences of not listening to what he's saying in verses 34 through 36, and he hinted at it earlier as well when he said things like, how were you going to escape the sentence of hell as they kept rejecting Jesus? Verses 34 to 36, he tells them, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus, after his death and resurrection and ascension, does send wise men and prophets and scribes, the apostles who would write the New Testament for us, who would be murdered, as he's just said. Almost all of them. That leads to consequences. It leads to the destruction of Jerusalem and of their temple, which happens 40 years later in 70 AD, but the rejection of murdering Jesus and the, 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 the repercussions of rejecting Jesus, the Son of God, the one name given under heaven by which we can be saved, is more than just the third exile of the nation of Israel. And it's more than just the second time their temple is going to be destroyed, but something far worse. The rejection of Jesus, the Son of God, as he was telling them is, how will you not escape being sentenced to hell? 
a forever apart from God when you reject him, a forever of torment paying for your own sins if you won't let him take care of it for you freely. Grace that is, of course, of tremendous, unfathomable cost to Jesus, but free to us. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't flatter the Pharisees as they've been flattering and trying to sugarcoat their words to try to get him rejected. He tells them the truth. As a good surgeon sometimes has to cut deep, he's going to tell us the reality of our condition without him and the opportunity to turn to him. He, he, he warns against hypocrisy. He pronounces these woes, these seven woes to the hypocritical Pharisees. But he doesn't stop by just crying out. That's not just our God. He tells us the truth. He tells us the logos, the true word. But he does it passionately. He has a heart that our hearts are, are, are fashioned after. He does it in passion. He weeps over Jerusalem, verses 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hear the passion of Jesus. It spills out of him. As he speaks to this city that was called by his name, that he put his name there for the people to know him and to represent him to the other nations who failed to do so and who are failing to receive the God who called them to himself. We see here a picture of pity and of disappointed love as these tears flow down his face. He compares himself to a mother hen because God made male and female in his image. That means the best attributes of both male and female are in our God. And he calls out saying, as a mother hen, the chicks naturally run to the mother hen for protection, for nurture. And yet his chosen city, Jerusalem, the vast majority of them reject him. And there's nothing left. There's nothing more he could do. And so they're left in death and destruction. And he's crying about a destruction that will happen, not the next day, not the next week, but 40 years later in 70 AD. We start to get into God territory when we hear things like that, that Jesus was crying about something that wouldn't happen until four decades later. Crying about the rejection of people that will be in hell forever. God territory. He cries out. But he closes it in verse 39 by saying, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He speaks of judgment, but then we see his heart and his compassion. His passion spills out, both for the truth and also for hope of restoration and the future. Not the entire nation didn't reject him. There were many, the crowds, the disciples. Not even every Pharisee rejected him. We have good reason to think Nicodemus came to the Lord in faith. But those who refused him would reap the consequences. And he does promise he is coming back. Last words in, in Revelation, one of the last words is, Behold, I am coming quickly. And next week in Matthew 24, as we go through the whole chapter... <laughs> we're gonna talk about some of the signs that he talks about of the end of the age. And I'm personally looking forward 
to talking to you about one of the three most controversial topics in Christianity, the end times. So don't miss next week, Matthew 24. <laughs> Jesus. When you think about logos, the word, when you think about pathos, the passion of Jesus, and when you think about ethos, the character of Jesus, what do you think about? Because Jesus didn't just speak logically, logically appealing true words. He is the word made flesh. He's capital T truth, truth itself. And he says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you know Jesus, Jesus will set you free. He is the truth. What about the pathos, the passion of Jesus, who passionately pursues his people, who speaks to us, sometimes loudly because that's what we need, sometimes softly because that's what we need, sometimes poetically or with stories or parables. Think about the passion of Jesus that didn't stop him from even going to a cross and dying for the sins of the world, enduring the wrath of Almighty God because of our mistakes. And think about the ethos, the character of Jesus, the only one who is 100% trustworthy. The only one who can say he is fully full of integrity. Integrity is someone who is of one mind. No matter what situation, circumstance they're in, they have the same goals, values, they're going to be the same all the time. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's, his char what's the character of someone who's never sinned? Someone who never for two seconds had a bad attitude. That is Jesus, the one who went and died for hypocrites like us. What an incredible man, what an incredible God, someone worth listening to. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes listening to your word is hard. God, it's easy for us to try to think about how we can best live just for ourselves, how to gain the most, how to get the most, how to use people to build ourselves up. And Lord, it's equally easy in thinking that we're pursuing you, that we're actually just trying to earn a relationship with you, trying to use you, Lord, trying to get to the point where you owe us something. But God, you paid it all for us. And as we hear your word, Lord, may it refine us, may it mold us more into your image and change us. Lord, sometimes we need to hear those difficult words. Because God, we know we are the ones that reject you. We are the ones that would have put you on that cross too. Thank you for coming, Lord, and your passion and your truth to live for us, to die for us to take us by the hand and lead us. May we continue to hear you, listen to you, and follow you. May our church do that, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.